1: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perles
0: As you've probably already heard, Big Picture Science is now on Patreon.
1: What you probably haven't heard is that if you join us on Patreon, you won't have to hear us talk about Patreon during the show.
0: That's right. Listeners who support us on Patreon automatically get early access to ad-free episodes.
1: So if you're already a Big Picture Science supporter on Patreon, not only did you already hear this episode over the weekend, you heard it without the interruption of us asking you to join us on Patreon.
0: that sound confusing? Well, it's not. Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and join us. Even the lowest giving level gets you early access to ad-free episodes.
1: Donate a little more and you'll get access to exclusive bonus material.
0: You might hear updates to previous episodes, extended interviews, or my answers to questions from other Patreon supporters.
1: And if you give at the next level... Well, you'll be thanked by us in the podcast.
0: Which, again, you'll be able to hear early and ad-free.
1: So join us today at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay. Well, I prepared to tuck into this burger, garnished with a, a lovely slice of portobello mushroom. I know that... I survive by putting food into my body, but this mushroom, a fungus, survives by putting its body into food. That's one of the many surprising things I learned about mushrooms. They're beyond tasty, and they're just about everywhere. And I ask you, how well do you know your fungi? I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley, welcome to Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, we go beyond the fruiting bit, the mushroom, down to the dense mycelial networks that grow like a giant cobweb below our feet. Their complexity and adaptability may astound you. So, taking our cue from fungi, which include mold and yeast, remember, we're going to cover as much as we can. It's mycology education.
0: We appreciate the bits of a fungus that we can see. That bag of mushrooms I bought yesterday, well, it's destined to be fried in butter and served up as part of dinner. But fungi aren't confined to bags or even frying pans. In fact, in the wild, they aren't confined, period. Mold is a kind of fungus, of course. Its invisible spores are everywhere. And sure, mold can be bad for us, I wouldn't recommend eating that chocolate pudding with the white fuzz on it, but mold can also convert a block of curd into delicious blue cheese or clear an infection.
1: Even the mold on an orange, while it makes it unsuitable for breakfast, is a good thing because where would the world be if nothing decomposed? Well, we'd be up to our eyeballs in rotting everything. The story of fungi is literally one of there's more than meets the eye. A mushroom is like an iceberg. The bulk of this ubiquitous life form, the part that transforms our world, lies below ground in a tangle of filaments called a mycelial network.
2: Mycelium is a generic term that describes the growth habit of most fungi, and mycelial networks are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. He's a biologist
0: with a degree in tropical ecology and years of research studying underground fungal networks. He's also the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. And he regards the object of his study, life itself.
2: My name is Merlin Sheldrake, and I study fungi because they are ecological connective tissue, the seam by which much of life is stitched into relation.
0: We think you'll find the world of fungi and the mycelia networks that give rise to them so interesting, so surprising, that we've asked Dr. Sheldrake to join us for the full hour. So let's get down to it.
1: Merlin, take us on a Jules Verne-like journey beneath our feet. If we could look out through our tiny submarine window at everything that's below us,
2: what would we see? If you could drop down into the soil. First of all, you wouldn't see much because it's dark, but if you imagined that the soil was somehow transparent to your gaze, you would see this endlessly knotting, twisting, fusing um, networks of fungi, Fungi, different types of fungi, different types of network. You would see bacteria um, sliding along the slimy film on the outside of these fungal networks, using them as highways to navigate the cluttered obstacle course of the soil. You'd see small animals grazing. Uh, you'd see all sorts of strange microbial creatures that you didn't recognize. Uh, you'd see these hot spots of decay where some rotting root or a rotting piece of wood had attracted to it. Uh, swarms of microbes drawn in for the feast. Uh, you would, if you could smell the chemical weather systems of the soil, you'd be overwhelmed by these different uh, fumes given off by you know, other organisms, fungi giving off fumes to attract or repel other fungi or bacteria. You'd smell rotting roots, rotting bits of wood. I, I mean, if I was down in the soil in this way, I think I'd get quite dizzy quite fast.
1: You know, Merlin, the nature writer Robert McFarlane has a phrase that has stayed with me which is height is celebrated, but depth is despised. Do you think that is true? Do you think that we hesitate to dig in and explore and appreciate the world beneath our feet?
2: I think it might bring up some fear and resistance. I also think we explore it less uh, because we just have not got the tools quite so readily to explore these underground worlds, especially on a microbial level. When we explore the microbial worlds in the soil, much of the time we have to to kill those microbes, to grind them up, to extract their DNA. Uh, It's very hard to pay attention to what's happening uh, without extracting different parts of these organisms. So even today, the best we can do is still very limited compared to our ability to fly up in the air, to climb so i think there's a big part of these underground worlds which are just unknown to us and still many parts of these underground worlds which are unknowable to us
1: well let's get to know some of these organisms and uh, let's get to know fungi when we think of fungi we often think of mushrooms perhaps because that's what's above ground but mushrooms are just the fruit of the fungi And you say it's like imagining an apple on a tree. (laughs) There's the apple and then there's the whole tree. So what's below the mushroom?
2: So there we find these mycelial networks, these branching fusing networks of uh, tubular cells. Uh, Mycelium is a generic term like the word tree, you know, when we think of When we think of an apple tree or think of a a redwood tree, these are very different trees, they're both called trees. And the same with mycelium, Uh, you have very different fungi. Uh, There are lots of ways to be a fungus. There are lots of ways to be a mycelial network. Some of them are just ephemeral puffs that uh, live on specks of house dust. Others can range over kilometers. And in fact, some of the largest organisms in the world are mycelial networks that range over kilometers. There's one in Oregon that sprawls over 10 square kilometers and is somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 years old.
1: Say more about what a mycelial network is. Is it like roots? Should we think of it like roots or antennae or what is it exactly?
2: So mycelium is how fungi feed. So animals put food in their bodies, fungi put Their bodies in the food and to do so uh, to have as much of themselves in contact with their surroundings as possible they form these networks which have a very high surface area relative to their volume so it allows them to explore and digest as much of their surroundings as possible and so of course if you're exploring your environment if you're putting yourself into your source of food your food source is going to vary and so you have to be able to change your shape your shape shifting and so these mycelial networks have very fluid boundaries they can grow in one direction and um, prune themselves back in another direction so they're these exploratory networks of tubes and so you might if you see a mycelial network you might think it's a bit like a cobweb but it's not really like a cobweb because cobwebs is made of threads and and mycelium is now, there's space within these fungal cells through which material can pass.
1: So what's important in these mycelial networks are not just the, the material, the substance itself, but the, the space in between it. Is that what you said? Because, because of what's being transmitted between those spaces?
2: Well, it's like if you have a transport network. So for a mycelial network to digest its surroundings, it has to be able to Uh, produce enzymes, acids, um, all sorts of compounds which it releases, which digest uh, say a block of wood that it finds itself buried in. Uh, And then it must absorb those nutrients and transport those nutrients around itself. So these networks are kind of transport networks and because they're transport networks it's all about what flows through the network. So you can think of these tubes um, um, but then you also need to think about what's flowing through these tubes.
1: I think that's why they call it the uh, the (laughs) why they call it the wood wide web. (laughs) So it's it's transporting all this information, but it also sounds like it's a circulatory system.
2: Yes. So within a given mycelial network, uh, nutrients uh, and other signaling compounds circulate. Um, this organism has to remain in touch with itself. It has to coordinate its behaviour without having a centralised place to do so. And so the circulation of, of material within these networks is very important. And so when you have these, say, a fungal network connecting two plants together, which can happen, um, then you can have material passing between those plants through the fungal network. And that's, broadly speaking, this idea of the wood wide web.
1: Now, it went by kind of fast, but you said that mycelial networks can grow to be quite large, many, many kilometers. I think uh, you mentioned Oregon had one of a few kilometers. Can you say that again, Merlin? Why why would a network need to spread so far?
2: Well, the fungi that form these really, really enormous networks, uh, these are known as honey fungi, and they live on trees, they kill trees and they, they feed on trees and so they just spread because they grow, they forage um, they maintain connections to places where they you know, had been before it's just this, the lifestyle of this network is to, to grow and to continue to expand and so it's like you know, why do some trees grow particularly large while others remain as small bushes? You know, it just depends, different types of fungus behave in different ways.
1: But but if a tree were to grow nine miles straight up, we might ask, why does it need to grow so tall? It is intriguing that a mycelial network isn't satisfied with your backyard or a square mile or a square kilometer but it needs to roam over many, many kilometers and miles, at least some of them do.
2: Well, I don't think they need to roam. They'd be quite happy to, You know, a, a honey fungus, an armillaria fungus, uh, would be able to live in a smaller area as well. I think these ones grow large because they can, uh, because there's space and resources enough for them to expand in this way.
1: So it sounds like what's below ground is this whole network, a circulatory system, passing nutrients and passing information. The mushroom that we see above ground, what we really focus on most of the time, that's the way that the fungus spreads its spores. But it's a fleeting moment in its life, unlike what's happening below ground.
2: That's right. Mushrooms, they have a role, biological role, uh, spore dispersal. And when they've played that role, then they decompose, they rot. Uh, And so it's very much analogous to the, the fruit, the role of fruit for plants.
1: One of the things that intrigues you about fungi is that unlike us, unlike animals that have a bilateral body plan, and it's pretty predictable, you know, central body and legs and arms, There is nothing like that in the mycelial network.
2: No, there's no center of operation. There's no head, no brain, uh, there's no heart. We're such centralized bodies that this can be hard for us to understand. Uh, But mycelial networks, they coordinate themselves uh, somehow everywhere at once and nowhere in particular, and they do so in ways that we we are still trying to understand. They're they're able to, mycelial networks live in their environment, they live bathed in a rich field of sensory information. And somehow they've got to integrate these data streams. Now they're sensitive to light, to uh, chemicals, to temperature, acidity, pressure. All these different data streams somehow the fungus can integrate these different data streams and um, decide on a suitable course of action to grow in a direction or to change direction of growth or to branch or to fuse. Um, And so in our bodies, we tend to, we look for brains because brains are where we integrate perceptions and where we connect perception and action. So yeah, so fungi live based in this rich field of information and somehow they're able to integrate this information and make decisions about the suitable course of growth, or whether to branch, or whether to fuse, or whether to produce this type of enzyme, or whether to fruit.
0: Well, you know, that's incredibly fascinating. Who would have thought I'd be fascinated by fungi? And I really can't wait to hear more. I, I have to say, one thing that struck me is the amazing range of their behaviors.
1: It's incredible. Say more. What did you find amazing about it?
0: Well, look, imagine you're a fungus and the things you have to do is find your food, get to your food, digest your food, react to, I don't know, danger. I'm not sure what danger they have there, but it's, you know, a nematode might try and eat you. And they can do all that even though they don't have any organs, right? They don't have the the ears, eyes, noses, sense organs, and yet they do all the things required of them.
1: I think it's incredible that some of these networks range many kilometers and that the one in Oregon that extends many kilometers is also 2,000 to 8,000 years old. That's ancient.
0: It is. You know, there aren't many things that are older than that. They tend to be trees, which also have root networks. I, I suppose the point is that, you know, if you're underground, there isn't really terribly much limitation on how big you can become. I mean, it is isn't like a tree. A tree can become 50, 100, 200 feet high, but not much higher than that simply because of the strength of wood. I mean, they just fall over. But if you're a mycelium network, I guess you can just go on and on and on as long as there's food.
1: Seth, do you realize that when you're eating your portobello mushroom or any mushrooms, you're eating spore dispersals, according to Merlin?
0: Yeah, well, I really never thought about it before, Molly, and now I am thinking about it, and I'm not sure I'm happy about it. Well, we'll continue our deep conversation with biologist Merlin Sheldrake. Up next is the complex behavior displayed by fungi, evidence of intelligence. It's mycology education on Big Picture Science.
1: Step
2: into the world of power, loyalty.
1: You know, Seth, it really is amazing how ubiquitous fungi are.
0: Yeah, and how large. I mean, some can spread out
1: over square
0: miles underground.
1: Well, what we talk about next is even more surprising. But at least one of our Patreon supporters already knows that.
0: Well, that's right. We asked our Patreon supporters to select the topics we should cover in future episodes And we added mushrooms to the list for fun, even though we were already producing this show.
1: It's always fun to add mushrooms to anything. Anyway, Mary, one of our Patreon tardigrades, let us know that she had read Merlin Sheldrake's book and was excited for the rest of you to hear about it.
0: And we're excited for the rest of you to join us on Patreon. And let us know what topics you'd most like to hear in future episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash Big Picture Science.
1: You'll be able to chime in on that poll and future polls, as well as get early access to ad-free versions of every new episode. And
0: the more you give, the better it gets. With exclusive bonus material, thanks in the podcast, and the opportunity to ask questions, all available as thanks for your support.
1: So please join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and thank you for your support. Thanks.
0: Now, when I stroll outdoors, I'll be aware of the vast mycelial networks beneath my feet. And I also might be reminded of them when I occasionally spot their fruiting bodies above ground. And those often appear suddenly. I don't know if you've had this experience, but, you know, you go into your garden or you look at your compost heap or something and find that the mushrooms have sprouted overnight. Scientists are learning just how responsive and adaptive fungi and their mycelial networks are. These underworld denizens are clearly capable of some truly astounding behavior. But does this behavior actually qualify as intelligence? We continue our conversation with biologist Merlin Sheldrake.
1: You describe these networks as making decisions and it's not a brain, but it is making very adaptive decisions. And how does a fungal network or a mycelial network decide which way to grow and is it actually Is it actually reaching for things? (laughs) Does it know what's around, and is it trying to move toward toward a tree branch or toward a particularly nutrient-rich part of soil?
2: Yeah. So different fungi do different things. If you were a a fungus that wanted to form to wanted to strike up a symbiotic relationship with a tree root then you would be able to detect chemicals being emitted by that tree root. These chemicals would ribbon out through the soil, these volatile chemicals, these signals. Uh, And then you would respond by maybe branching more, by growing towards this signal. um, It's a kind of chemical summons. At the same time, you might produce chemicals which would cause the tree roots to branch more, uh, to grow more rapidly, um, which would facilitate the relationship that you were about to form. Um, so there are many examples of this, this great chemical sensitivity, uh, chemical adeptness that fungi have. Some fungi hunt nematode worms and they summon nematodes with, uh, with nematodes summoning chemicals that again uh, travel through the soil, uh, attract the nematodes, and once the nematodes are close then the fungus can ensnare them in a noose uh, or poison them with a a toxic droplet.
1: But if they, if they snare these nematodes with a noose that noose has to come out pretty quickly if it's anything like a like a lasso do they have those kind of instant reflexes
2: in this cases of these these snare maybe a snare is a better term than a noose but once the nematode has grown through this loop in the fungal network. Then it can inflate in a tenth of a second, trapping the nematode, um, and then it paralyzes the nematode and then digests it. So yeah, this fungi can do fast movements for sure.
1: And this is all happening below our feet? Absolutely. I wonder if you could describe some of the symbiotic relationships that fungi have with the other plants and the roots that are down there, because they're really extraordinary. So the mycelial network is passing information, as you said, but it's also communicating with other plant roots, maybe other organisms. What are they connecting with down there and can you give us an example?
2: So this is what I've done most of my work on is the relationships that form between um, fungi called mycorrhizal fungi, myco from fungus, rhiza meaning root and the relationship between plants and their root fungi is very ancient and actually allowed the ancestors of land plants to move from fresh water out onto the land sometime around 500 million years ago and so about 90% of land plants form these relationships and back in the day when no land was scorched and desolate there was nothing that we would recognize no terrestrial life forms that we would recognize Um, and the ancestors of land plants started to wash up on the soggy shores of lakes and rivers where they started to form relationships with these fungi which were able to explore uh, these soils this solid uh, medium that they found themselves needing to extract nutrients from when they had been in the water Uh, they were floating in a nutrient broth and were never presented with this kind of challenge. So for the first 60 million years or so of the life of plants life on land, fungi behaved as their root systems and roots followed fungi into being. And to this day, this is uh, something that almost all plants depend on. These root fungi, which can scavenge in the soil, give them nutrients, give them water uh, in exchange for energy containing carbon compounds like sugars that plants produce in photosynthesis. Uh, So it's a very ancient alliance which has shaped the whole of life on land and makes the the animal land life like ours possible, underpins these great uh, lies at the bottom of these food webs and um, so whenever you're touching a plant you're touching the outcome of a plant and fungus relationship. Plants have fungi that live inside their leaves and inside their shoots Uh, no plant ever examined has been found without these fungi Uh, so you can think about plants as algae which have evolved to farm fungi and fungi which have evolved to farm algae Um, and so the example is all around us when you're looking at plants you're looking at what happens when organisms evolve together in a very intimate way over hundreds of millions of years,
1: and you said that the the mycelial network was a kind of proto uh, root network for early plants, and allowed them gave them the stability that they needed to grow their own roots.
2: Rather that they um, they could forage in sort of rocky, young soils that the um, and piles of decomposing matter, fungi were really good at exploring this kind of. Uh, medium, uh, whereas algae were used to floating in this nutrient blossom and, and didn't have the means to do so um, and had to spend some time evolving this ability. So it was more about nutrition.
1: And to be clear, the development of algae uh, led to the development of plants with root systems.
2: That's right. So plants develop root systems in response to the challenges that they faced in their new lives on land.
1: I've seen the videos that you've made of these dense mycelial networks and as they intertwine with plants and plant roots and one is almost indistinguishable from the other meaning they are so densely intertwined with each other that they indeed they become one organism it's hard to separate one from the other
2: yes yeah, so you could, if you look at a microscope, you can definitely distinguish fungal tissue from plant tissue. Uh, and if you cut open those plant cells and fungal cells, you would be able to find fungal DNA and plant DNA in those respective places. But their embrace is amazingly intimate. They clasp each other, um, and it's as if they're each prosthetic organs of the other. And so Lynn Margulis, the great um, visionary evolutionary biologist, she described the history of life as the long-lasting intimacy of strangers. And you really get this impression when you look at plants um, and their fungal partners entwined under a microscope. This is really the long-lasting intimacy of strangers, except they're hardly strangers anymore.
1: And fungi also live in us. We are also intertwined with these strangers, uh, strangers that you hope become friends, that we become more acquainted with. But we have these relationships too.
2: Yes, we have trillions of bacteria that live in our guts. We have fungi, we have yeasts which live in and on us, um, in our orifices, um, coat our skin. And so we are ecosystems.
1: You write that the mycelial networks have a call and response. Is, is that more than what you've, what you've already described to us?
2: I think I talk about that in relation to when some types of fungi find each other um, and they home, they have a homing response and they use pheromones to find each other and that's this chemical call and response uh, where they do this to allow each other to attract each other, grow towards each other and fuse to um, expand. Their network.
1: So, so, say more about that. Can you give us an example of um, a, a fungus that does that, and why? Why they reach out to each other that way?
2: These elongating fungal cells, which are called hyphae, they grow into their environment, and they have. Many things they can do they can they can grow towards other fungi they can grow towards themselves, other parts of their own network, or they can grow away from themselves from their own network, and all these different behaviors will create different types of network, some denser than others, um, some more exploratory and how these growing tips behave with regards to other growing tips is something that can change in different circumstances for example when a truffle fungus uh, for a truffle fungus to produce a truffle it has to engage in a sexual encounter with a compatible fungus of a different mating type to itself and to do that it has to find this a compatible fungus it has to find it using pheromones and it has to engage in a sexual act, which will then give rise to this truffle. So it's another way that um, fungi use these chemical um, signals, these chemical cues, to organize so much of their life.
1: When you say call and response, it's really sending out these pheromones is, I'm over here, I'm over here, come toward me. (laughs) Is that what it is?
2: Yes, you can think about it like that. Um, These are these, these chemical beacons, which invite a response. And so you know, there are many ways this happens in the natural world, when a truffle, for example, a ripe truffle, signals its readiness to be eaten um, by producing these pungent smells which travel through the soil, um, enter the air in a forest and attract nearby animals, whether dog, pig, shrew, squirrel, human, to drop what it's doing, to go towards the truffle, to dig it up, Um, to eat it and then to carry its spores off somewhere else and deposit them in its feces. So you can think about the response as the animal uh, coming towards the truffle and being incited to consume it. Uh, And you can think about the call as this pungent plume of delicious volatile compounds that the the fungus is producing. Very much like the way that plants attract animals using brightly colored fruits or delicious smelling flowers.
1: Merlin, you also write that mycelial networks can solve spatial problems really well. And I wonder if you could give an example of just how extraordinary this ability is and whether, I don't know if calculate is the right word, but they're able to calculate the most efficient route between places. Can you give us an example?
2: Yes, so you can make microscopic labyrinths and release... Uh, fungal mycelium into this labyrinth and it will grow, it will explore the labyrinth, it will branch if faced with a forked path, we'd have to choose one or the other Uh, and over time it will work out the shortest path between the the entrance and the exit Um, it's very much like the behaviour of slime moulds which are the poster organisms for brainless puzzle solving Uh, but fungi do this as well. And um, So this is maybe a surprise to us because we're used to thinking of intelligent behaviour as something that occurs in animals with brains, animals that, strangely enough, often look rather like us. But fungi, of course, are maze dwelling organisms. They live their life confined in cluttered microenvironments, exploring constantly changing shape and needing to solve the problem of how to distribute their bodies efficiently, effectively, on a moment-to-moment basis. And so when we challenge them with our neat little laboratory mazes, we're under-testing them, but it does help us to understand more what they're capable of doing.
1: I know you have a story that you tell about a friend of yours that (laughs) has used fungal networks to figure out the best and most efficient route out of an Ikea store. And if anyone's been into an Ikea store, one of these furniture stores, they are sprawling and you can go in and feel like you will never find your way out.
2: Yes, he actually used a slime mold to do that. Slime molds are also network-based organisms. They grow more quickly than fungal networks do, and so they've become these poster organisms. They're easier to study. Uh, but he yeah, he always got lost in his local IKEA, so he made a, a map over the IKEA, and he made a maze, uh, a small maze, of the ground plan of the IKEA store, and he unleashed his slime molds into this maze. And they found the shortest path to the exit, and he jokes that that they're cleverer than him because they could do this without asking any attendants for assistance
1: so, so to be clear we're asking fungi to solve human problems in this case are there other examples where we're asking them to you know come up with solutions for us
2: yes uh, another example is um, testing fungi uh, for their ability to break down certain compounds that we might want broken down um, we have a long history of recruiting fungi to break things down for us uh, alcohol for example we invite a yeast which is a fungus to break down the sugar and to produce alcohol and um, and so today there are questions of can fungi help us break down certain pollutants um, or dangerous compounds that we have released into the environment or that we just need to decompose before we can dispose of this stuff safely and so this is uh, a is a kind of uh, invitation to these fungi to use their metabolic ingenuity to disassemble uh, these compounds. And fungi are astonishingly creative, metabolically speaking, and can decompose most stubborn substances on the planet. Um, So this is another way that humans are entering into relationships with fungi in a a problem-solving sense.
1: You used the word intelligence a moment back, and it is true that our notion of intelligence is very human-centered. And I wonder if the um, the complexity, the symbiosis, the symbiotic nature, um, the adaptiveness of fungi, um, if it challenges our notion of intelligence or whether it should challenge our human-centered notion of intelligence.
2: So traditional classical conceptions of intelligence used humans as a yardstick um, by which all other organisms could be judged. It's a very human-centric view. Um, and it makes sense in a way. You know, As humans, we naturally put our own minds at the centre of our inquiry. But it's a very narcissistic view, really, and it can lead us to pass over or simply misunderstand other organisms. And so funky press hard on questions of intelligence, as do many other organisms. And now and now the concept of intelligence has deepened and expanded. And and there are a number of definitions of intelligence. Most involve an organism's ability to adapt to new situations, to make decisions between alternative courses of action, to solve problems associated with its existence. Charles Darwin thought of intelligence as the ability of an organism to do what it needed to do in order to survive, which I think is a lovely pragmatic way of thinking about it, and also puts the question of intelligence firmly into the terms of that organism. We wouldn't expect a plant to get up and run. Um, We'd be using human standards to assess this plant's ability to do what it needed to do. But in many ways we're starting to see that that is a biased and human-centric perspective.
0: Incredibly interesting, Molly. and and you know the, the fact that these things uh, exhibit behavior that in any other organism, you would say, well, clearly they're intelligent makes me kind of wonder whether maybe they are.
1: Right. And Merlin says that the definition of intelligence is moving away from a human centric one to one that embraces the complexity and the resourcefulness. Of many living organisms.
0: It's kind of a behavioral definition of intelligence. If you can do this, that, and the other, you know, have sort of a laundry list of the kinds of behaviors that you're going to associate with intelligence, then, you know, how it's structured, what it looks like, whether it's above ground, below ground, or flying in the air, you know, I guess you're compelled to call it intelligence.
1: What I think is astounding are the symbiotic relationships that mycelia networks have with trees, for example, and other plants, that their their roots and the mycelial filaments are so intertwined that unless you're looking carefully at them and looking at their cells, it's very hard to tell where one begins and the other ends, and that they depend on each other. And as Merlin said, it was the mycelial networks that allowed algae to find food on land, and that allowed the first land plants to take root, as it were, literally. Yes,
0: that's right. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> these funky they, they went up onto the land, and it was a tough environment, and uh, they made it easier for everybody that followed behind. It's just like Daniel Boone. We continue our deep conversation with biologist Merlin Sheldrake. Up next, from penicillin to psilocybin, the way fungi change our minds and our bodies.
1: It's mycology education on Big Picture Science.
0: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking about all that fungi do to make the world a livable biosphere. They also make it tasty. And as I think about that moldy cheese I found in the back of the fridge yesterday kind of brings to mind the many faces of fungi. Mold and yeast are fungi, as are, of course, mushrooms. They not only feed us, but the chemicals they produce save lives. Penicillin, for one, the first real antibiotic, while the compound psilocybin found in so-called magic mushrooms may also have a future in the treatment of disease. We continue our conversation with biologist Merlin Sheldrake, author of Entangled Life, how fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. Here's the thing. I mean, they have fruiting bodies, but they're not plants. And yes, they can digest worms and other things, but they're not animals. So what are fungi?
2: They're all related to each other, so they all form part of a certain uh, wing of the tree of life. And so they share common descent, and that's one of the really the most important things. Aside from that, they share the need to find food in the world and digest it, a bit like animals do. Unlike plants, they can't make their own energy from sunlight. They are eukaryotes, which means they have internally divided cells, like animals, uh, but they make their cell walls using chitin, a certain type of uh, compound which they share. And um, so it's a mixture of their metabolic tendencies, uh, their structural tendencies, but the most important thing is that they are a related group, that they share common descent.
1: You make the case that fungi, in your book, that fungi change our lives, and the way that we use yeast is an example how they literally do that, and we may not think that (laughs) when we use yeast, for example, to produce fermentation, but they are changing our brains. Can you describe that?
2: So, humans have been working with yeasts for a very long time. There are the oldest unequivocal evidence of human brewing practices, it goes back about 9,000 years, but it's almost certain that humans have been working with yeast for long before that. And We have a mutation in our body, uh, a gene which codes for uh, an efficient enzyme um, that allows us to break down alcohol and use it as a source of energy. Um, And this gene was upgraded at a certain time by a mutation about 10 million years ago, and it suggests that we were eating overripe fruit, that we had a need to break down alcohol, um, naturally fermenting fruit, producing alcohol, perhaps fruit that had fallen onto the floor of the forest as we explored a new dietary niche. And so our affiliation with yeasts and alcohol is in some sense written into our genomes.
1: And it is the fermentation, the product of that fermentation that has an effect on our brains when we feel intoxicated, for example, after drinking beer.
2: Exactly, yes. So the alcohol that that we drink and are altered by, um, this is produced by the yeast as it breaks down sugar.
1: Another way that fungi help us or or that change us are through the medicinal uses of fungi. Uh, Penicillin, of course, comes from mold. But I understand that we are not the only ones interested in antibiotics that the fungi have to fight off infections too. Do they produce their own antibiotics and and do they also produce their own antivirals?
2: Yes, so fungi live their lives enmeshed in their surroundings and so in this very a close contact with their surroundings and so just as they're maximizing their surface area so that they can digest efficiently they're also making themselves vulnerable because uh, bacteria and viruses that want to infect the fungi have a lot of opportunities to do so. So fungi have to have immune systems, they have to be able to defend themselves and using their metabolic ingenuity they do. And so when, when Alexander Fleming noticed that this mold, this penicillin mold, seemed to be killing these patches of bacteria on dishes in his lab, what was going on was that the fungus was defending itself by producing this antibiotic. We now know it's called penicillin. And so when we use these antibiotics, we are uh, rehousing a fungal solution uh, in our own bodies. We are applying a fungal cure evolved by fungi for their own purposes. We are rehousing that and using it to serve our purposes. And antibiotics that kill bacteria, uh, it doesn't stop there. Fungi produce all sorts of antiviral compounds. Um, And many of these are in use in human medicine um, and show great promise in treating various viral infections.
1: Merlin, when we hear about people taking mushrooms, we think about them doing it for recreation, not therapeutic reasons. But here in the US, the FDA has designated psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for the treatment of all sorts of things, depression and other serious disorders, in, including Alzheimer's. Uh, why psilocybin? What is it?
2: Psilocybin is a, a, what we call a psychedelic compound produced by certain species of fungus. And it slips into the workings of our nervous system uh, and binds to receptors that normally receive uh, serotonin, which is a common neurotransmitter. In our, in our brains and in our bodies. And so it changes the way that we experience our bodies, changes the way that our bodies behave. So what this recent wave of research into the effects of psilocybin are showing is that psilocybin relaxes um, the rigid habits of our minds and of our thoughts, allows us to think and experience in new ways. I and mean, that can be really helpful for People suffering with depression, for example. Uh, New connections in the mind open up. New pathways of thought and experience become possible. The grip of our expectations, the grip of our habitual patterns of thought is loosened. uh, And we're able to, to feel and perceive in new ways. And that can be really an important thing.
1: Psilocybin is produced naturally, of course, by more than 200 species of mushrooms. The, the mushrooms aren't going on mushroom trips. Maybe they are going on mushroom trips. Why do they produce psilocybin? What's, what use is it to them?
2: This is a question which has been poured over for years by mushroom enthusiasts, um, ecologists, um, and biologists of all sorts. And the short answer is that no one is sure. Uh, it's thought that the first magic mushroom evolved about 75 million years ago or so, so long before humans arose. And what it did for these mushrooms is hard to say. It's clear that it served some purpose, because the ability to produce psilocybin passed between different species of mushroom by what's called horizontal gene transfer. Um, and the suite of genes needed to produce psilocybin stayed intact as it passed between these different species, suggesting that it served a purpose, it wasn't just some chemical byproduct accumulating in some metabolic backwater. Um, but what it did for these mushrooms is unclear so one possibility is that it served as a deterrent to insect pests um, that insects who ate these mushrooms would become distracted or maybe have their minds taken off their next meal Um, this is a possibility but there are many species of insect that live quite happily on magic mushrooms and so if it's a deterrent it doesn't seem to be very effective. Um, Another possibility is that it serves as a lure, somehow changing insect behaviour in a way that benefited the fungus, perhaps that helped it spread its spores. Um, But we're not sure. It could of course be both, and insects that develop resistance to the psilocybin are able to eat it with no problems. Uh, So the answer is that we're not sure, but it's something to do with the changing of insect behaviour seems like the most likely option.
1: Well, another example of the remarkable adaptiveness of fungi is that fungi have lived through a number of extinction events. In fact, I think all five extinction events, the Permian extinction, the KT extinction that did away with the dinosaurs, and you write that they not only survive these cataclysmic events that kill off 80 or 90% of uh, living creatures, they thrive on these cataclysms. Why is that?
2: some fungi thrive. Uh, So, for example, in the KT extinction, the one that killed off the dinosaurs, when this asteroid hit the earth and spat trillions of tons of material uh, out into the atmosphere um, it caused acid rain, clouds of dust to block out the sun. uh, This is a really um, awful time to to be a large organism like a dinosaur. It doesn't have the ability to hide or take shelter. But What this meant was that much of the forest on the planet died off and so there were all of these dead plant bodies to decompose and for any fungus that liked to decompose dead plant bodies this was a a massive opportunity. So this kind of global compost heap uh, arose and so decomposer fungi uh, thrived in this new environment. Other types of fungus would have thrived less, those perhaps that depended on living plants rather than dead plants. Uh, so it's not that all fungi survived um, all fungi thrived, but a number of them did.
1: You know, Merlin, over the course of this conversation, I've come to feel very appreciative of fungi and grateful to them.
2: <laughs> That's good. Of course, fungi do uh, cause trouble. Um, they can fungi cause billions of dollars of damage to crops every year and have transformed landscapes by uh, killing off certain trees like chestnut blight, for example. So fungi aren't necessarily um, good or bad, uh, but they just are so involved with the way that the planet works that we can't live our lives without them. We can't really move forwards from here without thinking about them and without finding ways to uh, work with them. And so, yeah, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're appreciating them.
1: Although humans also can cause damage and they also transform their landscape and they cause species to go extinct. But unlike fungi, if we were to disappear, life would go on.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So if humans were made extinct in a single instant, um, then life would go on. If fungi were to disappear, then maybe life would go on, but it would be hard to recognize it. Plants would cease to survive. Uh, the bodies of animals and plants would pile up um, on the surface of the earth, undecomposed, kilometers deep. The great biogeochemical cycles that um, govern the behavior of many of the organisms on the planet, and in turn are caused by many of the organisms on the planet, would shift and change. And so, Without fungi, life as we know it would be impossible.
1: Merlin Sheldrake, what a pleasure it is to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Merlin Sheldrake is a biologist and the author of Entangled Life How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures.
1: Well, Seth, so the big picture here is the big picture of mycelial networks. They are everywhere and they and other kinds of fungi are indispensable to life itself and yet much of what they do goes unappreciated because it's done below ground yeah it's
0: it's amazing how how many strings they're pulling and yet as you say we generally don't notice it it's sort of like the man behind the curtain in the wizard of oz you know they're in charge of many things the other thing of course that was truly astounding to me is how much behavior they're able to master behavior that's very complex. I mean, like solving mazes, or, or I saw a TV show where they actually sort of solved the traveling uh, salesman problem, whereas, you know, massive computers have trouble with that. So, I don't know, this is, this is a kind of intelligence we're not used to because it doesn't involve brains, it doesn't involve neurons, and there's no spinal column.
1: That's right, and I think it calls upon some humility on our part, um, that is the part of humans who for a long time, considered intelligence to be only in the realm of humans. In other words, we have a human-centered model for intelligence, and the behavior of fungi really challenged that. Well, I learned a lot about fungi, and I want to thank Merlin Sheldrake again for staying with us for an extended interview. We couldn't do this show without the far-reaching abilities of producers behind the scenes, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks to both of them, I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bowes Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, life in extreme environments. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters.
1: Extra special thanks to our Patreon velociraptors, Tim Condon, Michael Peterson, and JW from sunny San Diego.
0: As well as Sadruddin Rajeb from Switzerland. And last but definitely not least... Baron von Awesome.
1: This episode of Big Picture Science was an extended interview with the biologist Merlin Sheldrake. It's called Mycology Education.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring:
1: a laundry? Ooh, a book club!